A credit score is a funny thing. We put so much emphasis on them in our big life purchases, yet some of us rarely try to understand what actually goes in to making the score itself. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and I'm really excited to have you guys here. We are going to unpack credit scores. It's almost like a definitive guide, if you will, to everything that's impacting your scores. Like what is a credit score, why you need a credit score, how it's calculated, all the good stuff. So before we jump in, let's hear from our sponsor. So it's been a month that we're now into 2021 and you're finally ready to commit to this year being better than last, but you might be stuck in the weeds of charting. You spend your evenings catching up on notes and messages when you can leave work with a clean slate and enjoy an evening to connect and recharge. Dr. Phil Boucher is a pediatrician, a podcast host, and a father of five who's heard from so many physicians like you who are ready to step out of the day-to-day grind, the never-ending charts, meetings, messages, and reclaim your time to focus on what only you can do. He's put together a six-week course called On Time MD for physicians who need just that, more time. In this course, physicians of all specialties and employment statuses can learn the time management strategies that have been tailored specifically for the unique demands that physicians face. On Time MD walks through time management strategies in the exam room, in your inbox, and EHRs, in meetings, and so much more. The most popular module is called How to Delegate Without Dumping and teaches physicians like you how to delegate your tasks to your staff in a way that doesn't make them feel like they're being dumped on, but instead inspires them to work on your behalf to the common goal of patient care and getting home at a reasonable time. Listeners of Financial Residency can save 15% on Time MD's course by using the code 2021 at checkout. The course also comes with the guarantee that if in six weeks you haven't reclaimed at least three hours per week, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Don't let another year go by doing the same thing. Now is your chance with On Time MD to reclaim your time for good. Go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash ontimemd, it's O-N-T-I-M-E-M-D, to get started today. And it's also in the link of the description of the podcast player you're listening to me in right now. All right. So like I said, credit scores are a funny thing. To some of us, it's this elusive number that we have little control over. To others of you, maybe you've done some deep dive. It's a number that seems to follow you wherever you go. Well, that's partly true as well. There's a lot we can learn from our credit score, and there's even more we can do to improve the number if it's not a number that you want to see. Now, want to give a heads up, the credit score is a number itself is important, but it's not the most important. And it is only one piece of our entire financial puzzle. It's not only an indicator of our financial health, but it's, I think, a pretty important aspect to it. And especially if you're trying to get a loan, that's one thing that they're going to look at is how great of a borrower are you? And your credit score is a way for them to tell you that, right? There's a reason why you can find so much information on your credit report and through monitoring your credit score. Everyone has to have a number to finance anything in life. Now, fortunately, you can access all that information right away. It doesn't have to be this weird conundrum or something you feel like you can't control. And I think I'm here today to help unravel that mystery. So a credit score is a three-digit number that's assigned to you, which ultimately determines your quote-unquote credit worthiness as a consumer. And the range is from 300 to 850 and 850 being an absolute perfect score. I know one person that has an absolute perfect score. And in all honesty, until like early, you know, mid 2010, 12, something like that, you couldn't even really get a perfect score. You get really close, but 
I know one person and it's not me. That is a perfect score. So the idea of this is to have a high score, but not to have a perfect score. I know all of you are like, well, it's the whole goal of all my other training like to get perfect. This is not something you're going to get perfect. And in fact, there's some ranges and I'll go over them really quickly because I think it'll kind of help give you some perspective. So they're the poor range from 300 to 579. Don't want to be there. 580 to 669 is what they call fair. We want to get you out of there. That's the way I look at this. 670 to 739 is a good credit score. Still wanted you to be a little bit above that because if you're going for a loan, usually when it's a very good score, which is 740 to 799, you're going to have the best rates. Anything above that 800 to 850, one, less than half the percent of the population actually has that score. Literally only know one person that has a perfect score, but anything in the very good, you're going to get some of the best rates. So anything above 740, you're doing fantastic. Now, there are those who would argue it doesn't make sense to be boxed in by a number. A credit score is that statistical indicator that many companies are going to use to say, do you really pay your bills on time and do you pay them back in full? It's one of the only metrics that a company, if you're trying to borrow money from, has the ability to go in and see what has happened in your past and how you are likely to perform in the future. So like it or not, our credit scores are used to determine this ability to borrow in a responsible manner. Credit scores and the reports, I should actually be saying, is the credit report, the score is part of your your report, is an indicator to your behavior with respects to lending. I like to think of credit scores and credit reports as our general report card. Like a report card, I may not have agreed with every grade that I received, and I may not agree with every entry that's in my credit report, but overall, I think it's going to give you a fair mark of just how responsible you are as a borrower. And credit scores aren't the only thing that are used to determine your credit worthiness and your responsibility. Your credit score like directly impacts, like I mentioned, your interest rates and how much you're actually going to pay for certain items. So let's say you're going for that 15-year mortgage or 30-year mortgage, actually just a mortgage, and you have an interest rate that you're quoted from the lender. It will actually be based on, one, current market conditions, and two, your credit score. Now, the higher your score, the lower the interest rate. So you want to protect your credit score because it could save you tens of thousands of dollars over your life just of the life of the mortgage because you secured a lower interest rate. Now, most people, I think, understand that when you need a score to borrow money, high score is also helpful when you make everyday purchases. So if you're applying for insurance, the score can be used to affect how much premium you're going to pay. When you're going to buy a new cell phone, even if you're not going to finance the phone, they still want to know, can you pay your bills or setting up a contract for other services like TV? It may be needed for rent. Like I'm not even talking about borrowing money just to actually rent an apartment. You have to have a good credit score. Unless you pay for cash for everything, you can expect to have your credit score trail around with you for your whole life and you need to make sure that you nurture it and take care of it. It just doesn't have to be perfect. Now, I don't know if I'm the only one that has ever wondered how the score is calculated, but I can tell you that it's a very complex process. Each reporting bureau uses a slightly different calculation and there's brand names, if you will. One is the FICO and one is Vantage. And the three major credit reporting agencies are Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And you might have heard those names, but there's several factors that are considered inside the number 
that is calculated. And this could be payment history, utilization, the age and mix of your credits, the amount of inquiries you've had. And I'll go into those in a little later detail to explain those. But I wouldn't worry about how it's calculated, even though I love this stuff and I want to know. It's actually not public knowledge and they're always tweaking stuff. But I will go into the factors that would affect your FICO score. And the FICO score is for the Fair Isaac Corporation. It's the, that acronym. And it's by far the largest of the companies would calculate your score. But like I said, you might've heard Advantage as well. So like I mentioned, the FICO score has a range of 300 to 850. And of course, the higher, the better. But the analytics team at FICO couldn't be satisfied with just one way to calculate your credit score. So there's actual multiple models that are used to calculate different credit scores based on the type of lending that you need. So a lender from a mortgage company would use potentially a different score than a lender that you were trying to go get a car loan with. And I think that's important to understand because your FICO scores that you see online aren't always gonna match up to the one that your potential lender is using. So if a lender says, hey, your credit score is 750 and you saw online it was 800, you might see something different. Now it shouldn't be that drastic, but you get the idea is that it will likely be something different. And that is why, because there's multiple versions of their model or their scoring model. So you know there's a three digit number and you understand that there's an amazing amount of value placed on that number. So you might wanna know where you go find this number. And the answer honestly is in your credit report and there's things that you can go. So annualcreditreport.com will give you, it's a free, easy, convenient way to pull it. And due to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, you are able to go and obtain one of these reports from each of the three reporting agencies every year for free. And what you're gonna do is it's gonna give you basically your whole credit report. And this information that's on the credit report is anything related to a financial institution. So that could be credit card companies, banks, lenders for mortgages, car loans, honestly, solar, any other lender that you have. And these financial institutions are the same ones that are reporting the information to the credit bureaus. So for you, this means that the lender is also the reporter. And that's important later on when we talk about identifying discrepancies in your credit report. So your credit report is going to give you your current credit score. It's going to give you all your credit history, any inquiries that were made on your credit file, in addition to public records. And it's important to understand that the information in your credit report is what is actually making up your score and critical that you understand that in addition to public records. Now, when you look at your credit report, this is the part where I don't want you to be the doctor and say, hey, oh, look, my credit score is 780, I'm good. No, I want you to actually go through line by line and look at your credit, make sure you recognize everything because it won't contain all your information, but it is so much of your personal information that will be inside there that you wanna make sure that it's all accurate. And trust me on this one, Mistakes are always made, so it's really, really important to dig in. Now, it won't ever contain information like your current job status or your salary or even your employment history. It won't have your checking or your savings accounts or your brokerage accounts or marital status or race or sex or religion. It won't have any of that stuff, but it has basically everything else inside of it. So like I said, go to annualcreditreport.com, give you a free one. I also have Credit Karma on my phone. I'm a big fan of them. It's free. It's a monitoring thing. If there's any change, I get alerted. Some of you might want more secure options if you've had your identity stolen or if maybe you're a little more fearful. And we could talk a little bit more on that, but there's other options that you can do. But I choose to use the free option with Credit Karma. I'm pretty happy with that. 
But once you've received that credit report, you're probably like, okay, cool. Like, how do I read this thing? What is, what's going on? So first thing you'll notice is some basic information, your name, your address, your social, uh, obviously make sure and verify that that's correct. And then we're going to dig in here. So this is where there's the credit history, credit inquiries, public records. Your credit history refers to your record of borrowing and repaying your debts. This could be several years old, decades old. It could be just established a short time ago. It really is dependent on you and your situation. But it'll show anything that you've borrowed from a bank, a credit card company, any installment loans. That would be things like student debt, personal loans, car payments. It'll also show the age of those accounts. And this is likely going to be the largest section of information will be your credit history. So please carefully review that. And honestly, I think everyone should be doing this at least semi-annually. But go through, review that very carefully and check for any errors or inaccuracies because a great deal of, let's call it the weight in your credit score of how it's calculated is based on your length of credit and what is in your credit history. Now, the lenders look at this as it's extremely important for them because that is how they are going to consider you an indicator for future payments or delinquencies. Like this is the best snapshot that they're going to have that, hey, Ryan's actually going to pay me or not pay me on time, which comes to my next thing. Please pay everything on time. It is so critical that you get things paid on time. Absolutely mandatory. You're paying your bills on time. Your credit history is also going to show not just the open accounts, but your closed accounts. And each entry will show if it's a revolving line of credit or an installment loan. You also see the summary of payments, whether they were made on time or the number of days that you paid things late. It stays with you. That's why paying things on time is really, really important. The longer the credit history with a positive payment record, I will add, then that will actually have the best impact on your credit score. And that's why it's, again, another reason to avoid, not only avoid late fees, but to pay things on time because it will impact your credit. One of the things I mentioned was credit inquiries. And so anytime a financial institution, a lender, a bank, credit card company, whatever, reviews your credit report, it's referred to as an inquiry. Inquiries will show up on your credit report and they can impact your score, positive, negative, although it won't be as the same extent as your credit history or your utilization, which I'll discuss here in just a second. Inquiries are divided into two categories, hard inquiries and soft inquiries. Yeah, super, super original, but hey, it's easy to remember. So hard inquiries are when a financial institution actually pulls your credit. They are able to review everything on your credit report and decide if you're a good candidate to lend money to. And this will be noted and reported in your credit report. That's why when they ask you, may I run your credit report? It is a hard inquiry that they're running. Now, it typically doesn't stay on that long, but it is probably going to stay on your credit report for about, well, anywhere from one to two years. But typically, I see them stay on the reports for about two years. Now, it could be shorter if you are shopping for a mortgage and have multiple lenders pulling quotes and you're pulling your credit. And there's also something called the soft inquiry. And that's when an institution is going to pull your information for credit, but they aren't going to pull the hard credit. Think of credit card companies that are trying to review if they can send you on a new credit offer. They're going to pull a soft inquiry. You won't notice. It won't ping you at all. It won't apply to your credit. This could also be if you're applying for a job and the company wants to run a credit check. 
So unlike hard inquiries, soft inquiries will not impact your credit score. And if they show up, it's only going to be for a very, very short time. I mentioned public records on how part of your score is calculated. And the public records section of the credit report is where the serious delinquencies would be recorded. Hopefully none of you have things on your public record, but if you do, they're going to be there a long time, seven to 10 years. Uh, Usually it's seven years, uh, but it could be as upwards of 10, depending on what it is. And this is where things like bankruptcies, foreclosures, tax liens, lawsuits, judgments, all sorts of crazy stuff could be pushed up into the public record section. This is something where you really don't want to have anything there. If you find an error in the public record section, you need to go and immediately dispute it with each credit bureau because this is likely hammering your credit score. So if you look at your credit score and see, oof, this is not where I want it, the first place I would actually look is here because if something is here that you shouldn't have, you need to go and reach out and get this fixed immediately. Now, I talked about credit utilization as one of the bigger factors of your credit score. And basically, what your credit utilization is looking at is how much of your revolving credit lines are you using? And remember, revolving credit line is like your credit cards. So when you are looking at it in terms of like how much is your payment each month, and it can revolve and be different. Installment loans are treated differently since it's a fixed amount per month, but your revolving credit can be used and will change each month. So if you had, let's say 10 credit cards with a $3,000 credit limit on each, a $30,000 total credit line, that is the total amount of credit you can have. And two cards have a balance of, let's say $500 each, and the other cards have zero, your credit utilization is 1,000 divided by 30,000. That's gonna be very low. The lower utilization, the better. In this case, let's say you had 10 credit cards with 3,000 each to be 30,000, and two cards had $5,000, and the rest of the cards had zero, then your utilization would be 10,000 divided by 30,000, or 33%, and that is higher, and that is not good. So you want to make sure that your utilization is as low as it possibly can be. And it probably accounts for around 30% of your overall credit score weighting. So it's worth the time to understand not only what it is, but how you can improve in this area. Lower utilization signals to your creditors that you're responsible with credit. I kind of snuck a term in there, I believe I've talked about it here already, but a credit mix. And that was kind of like the number of installment loans or the number of revolving loans, consumer credit cards, things like that, that you have. And that's really talking about your credit mix. It's based on the amount of revolving credit versus installment loans that you have. And you want a healthy credit mix. And that is one where you have both credit cards and installment loans. And there's no perfect ratio. They've never come out and publicly said this is what it is. But you want to have a mix of the two versus only just one type of credit. Now, I'm not a huge fan of debt and I'm not saying to go take on debt to have a better score because if you don't have any reason to borrow money, then your score almost is pointless. Or again, you still need it for some utilities and things like that, but you'll have a plenty of high enough credit score for any of that. So again, not telling you to go get more credit, but just saying it's usually when they look at credit mix, it's not a huge deal, but they'd like a healthy credit mix. So at this point, you're probably wondering, like, where do my student loans fall within the credit report? And they fall under what's called the installment loan category. This means that in your credit report, they're going to show them as the overall amount of what you currently owe, not how much you've paid down. So 
while we care about what you're paying down and how you're doing great job eliminating your debts, the credit bureaus, they don't care at all. They just want to know how much money do you still have left to pay? How much do you still owe? And thankfully, a large amount of student loans doesn't mean that you're going to automatically have a lower credit score. Student loans impact your credit score in a couple ways. Sometimes they can actively hurt your score, but in most cases, they're actually going to help your score as long as you're making consistent on-time payments. That's probably the biggest factor in that overall number. So if you're consistently paying your student loans on time, or if you have late payments, that will be reflected in the report. And depending on how you handle your monthly payments, will determine if it's positive or negative. But we already talked about you're going to pay all your bills on time, so it should infect them positively. Now, student loans are that installment loan. It's not part of the revolving credit, and that's why they're not factored into your overall credit utilization. So they're not really going to harm you or help you in that utilization piece. But there's a little bit of good news, right? Having student loans will help boost your overall credit score slightly because if you have that positive payment history, and it'll show and say, hey, Ryan took out money. He's been paying it back. He's doing a great job. And so that one will help the credit mix that I spoke on. But it also show, hey, he's got positive payment history. He's a good borrower. He'll pay it back. Now, as long as you continue to make payments on time, then you don't have to view loans as a detriment to your credit score. It only becomes a detriment if you start with late payments. And you don't want to do that. So don't do that. So I've talked about what really makes up the bulk of your credit report. And I'd like to just focus this last little bit here on things that could maybe improve your credit score. So if you ran your credit, you see this credit score, and it isn't the number you're hoping to see, there are things that you can actually do to improve them. And improving your credit score is really beneficial prior to making a big purchase. So if you know that, hey, look, we're going to buy a house pretty soon, you really want to focus on how you can improve your credit in the near term to get up into that very good range. It could also work with a car if you needed to finance a car. We've talked on prior episodes, you should not be leasing or buying a car with lots of debt. You should be able to pay it in cash. But I realized that, and just as we were coming out of training, you're not going to have a lot of assets to do that. But if you're already established, you're 5, 10, 15 years out of training and established in your practice, please pay for your cars in cash instead of taking on debt. So some long-term strategies, because I always like looking long-term first, is really just pay your bills on time. (laughs) Paying your bills is so critical. I don't know if I can say it any more than I will. And I'm going to keep kind of beating this into you guys. Paying your bills on time is really, really critical. So it one, it'll help get your finances organized, right? Because now you're on top of your payments and you're understanding what it is. And you can set up automatic bill pay or establish sinking funds to cover the big costs, right? We've talked on all this stuff. There's a lot of strategy to make sure that you're paying your bills on time. Just pick one that works for you. I know your lifestyle is crazy as a busy physician, but please pay your bills on time. This one may surprise you, but keeping your accounts open, even when you have a zero balance. So we're conditioned in the opposite way to think, well, limit the number of accounts that are in my name, right? To make things simple and pay cash for everything, right? And that makes me more responsible, but that isn't how the credit bureaus view your closed accounts. Now, I'm not saying to go open a bunch of credit cards, leave zero balances and just have a bigger utilization that will hurt you in the short term and just make things complicated. But if we're already looking at stuff, we can't affect and change the past. But if you already have the accounts and they're already at zero, you don't need to go around just slamming all your accounts shut. 
unless they're at a bunch of different institutions and you're just going to ignore it, don't worry about your credit. At that point, you might want to strategically close accounts. But keeping your accounts open will actually, uh, one, improve your utilization number, which is, again, vital to the overall credit score. And if you've paid the balances and you don't want to maybe you know slip into bad habits, then I would definitely close the card. But remember, you don't have to keep the physical card. You can also track it in YNAB, make sure nothing's being charged on it and keep it open. There's some short-term strategies. And I think the easiest, lowest hanging fruit, because mistakes happen all the time, and probably the best tactic, is thoroughly go through your credit report and review for any discrepancies. You say, hey, look, my car payment was marked 30 days late one time two years ago. I would absolutely contest it. Credit Karma, you can go in, you can select the exact payment. You can say, hey, this was marked in error. Please fix this. I've made every payment on time. Hopefully you have made every payment on time, right? But you can go through and you can do that and it's free and you can contest things and view your discrepancies. Please go resolve those. There's going to be probably at least one inaccuracy, but trust me, the credit unions are not going to take it upon themselves to clear your name going, oh, I one payment for Ryan two years ago. He's a good guy. He'll fix it. Like, we'll change that. No, no. You have to go and initiate it. You have to tell them. Then they go and they verify with the lender. Hopefully the lenders, yeah, whatever, who cares? And you move on and it gets cleared up. If you have a bunch of late payments and you're behind, see if your lender will agree to help you out with your credit score. If you're able to make those payments quicker or to establish a zero balance, there's all sorts of ways that you might be able to negotiate your way out of fixing your credit, but eliminating discrepancies is a big, big deal. You could actually put extra money towards your debts. If you've got a high credit utilization and you need a short-term fix, well, pay down your credit cards. Don't go take out more credit cards because that shows that you need more debt to cover things and damage would be done at that piece. But pay down more to your extra debt and lower your revolving credit would definitely be helpful. You could get your credit limit increased instead of getting a new card, call up Chase Bank and say, hey, this 10,000 isn't high enough. I need it to be 15 or 20. Now, I'm not saying then to go spend 15 or 20,000. I'm trying to give you a quick little burst of potentially a higher score if you're trying to, let's say, go get a mortgage. If you don't have a bunch of money to toss at your debts and revolving, make multiple payments each month. So in theory, by doing that, it's not allowing your utilization to spike. It's allowing it to be paid off more quickly, right? Because you're making multiple payments each month. So that at least your utilization won't keep increasing. The last thing I will leave you guys with, and this is really for med students or new residents that maybe have never established credit. If you can become an authorized user, let's say on your parents, this really works with someone you trust, you can actually become an authorized user on their account. And it's actually a pretty quick way to improve your credit score. And so with this strategy, you don't even have to have access to the account number or the credit card, but you're going to reap the benefits of the original account holders, higher credit limit and solid payment history. So as long as your parents or a really trusted close friend have that and you need to bump up your credit, that could be an approach. Now, I'm not saying that this is the approach to do. And really, actually, where this could be is with your own kids. So did you know that as a parent, you can set up your kids as an authorized user on your accounts, which in turn then establishes credit for them? I know this firsthand works because I was extremely fortunate as a baby. My parents somehow got an Amex card 
uh, for me, one of those free Amex cards that was tied to their account. I was authorized user. I never even knew it existed until literally college, but I benefited from their high credit limits, their solid payment history, their on-time payment history for a very long time. So when I actually went to open my own credit card, I already had a very long history established, even though I didn't even know the credit card really existed because they got it to me when I was extremely young. It was probably one of the coolest things my parents have ever done. That shows you I'm a money nerd in itself. But that is something that you might be able to look into to help your kids build credit. So in summary, I want to give you guys just a quick little snapshot here. Go pull your credit. You can go to annualcreditreport.com, fill in your information. You get to download your credit reports in a few minutes. Please read it carefully. Go through everything. Make sure all the accounts are yours. Make sure all the information is correct. If you see anything that's wrong, contact the bureaus immediately. And then there's been more rising popularity with freezing your accounts because of data breaches. You absolutely can do that. When you freeze your account, you'll get a PIN number that will allow you to then unfreeze it at a certain point in time if you needed to have a loan application or something else. Otherwise, no one could access the account while it's frozen. So you can call the three bureaus and do it through their automated system. And I would say, don't forget about your kids because sometimes kids' social security numbers are more vulnerable because we're not paying attention to those. So when there's a major security breach, like the ones that we have been seeing in the recent years, we might actually have our children have been exposed to fraud, might want to look at potentially freezing their accounts, but know your credit score, know how it can improve your finances. Like understanding all this information, which makes up your credit score is a really great way to empower yourself and to understand your finances going forward. When you know what it takes to achieve and maintain a good credit score, then I think it'll help you in basically making better financial choices. Credit score though, again, to round this all out is one piece of the overall financial puzzle when it comes to your personal financial management. Your score doesn't have this mysterious number that you only review occasionally and it's just a number. No, go through, read your report, make sure you recognize anything, make sure you're familiar with the number because you have complete control over it. All right, transitioning over to our curbside consult. So you'll hear someone other than me talk right now. Let's bring on someone in our community that has a question about financial advisors. Hi, Ryan. My name is Claire. I'm an allergist and immunologist in Los Angeles. I had a question about picking a financial advisor. So my husband banks with Schwab right now and uses their intelligent portfolios, which has a robo-advisor. But they have an option. It's Intelligent Portfolios Premium, and it's basically a subscription, and you get access to a certified financial planner. And they claim that they can help you with all aspects of finance, including your investments. They have a flat fee of $300 to start, and then it's a monthly fee of $30. And I guess my question was, do you guys have any experience with this type of financial advisor, and how does this differ from the fee-only financial advisors that you guys always talk about on your podcast. Thanks so much. Claire, that was a great question. Thanks so much for calling in. So obviously I'm a little bit biased on this one. So give you guys more of a disclaimer. And I talk a little bit about it on the show, but I don't like slam it in your face. Casey and myself, we are fee-only financial planners. We work with physicians and their families all across the country. And that means that we don't sell products. We don't get kickbacks. We don't get commissions. 
This is what we do as our as our quote unquote day job. I'm not just a podcaster. This is actually what we do all day, every day is help physicians and their families with their financial planning. So if you're looking for a financial planner, we would love to talk with any of you out there that are actually looking for a planner and want to get a plan built and actually implemented in 2021. Now to answer your question and to talk specifically on, there's two pieces to your question. One is the robo and one is the the CFP or the planner that they have on call. And I think robo advisors for what they are, many advisors, I'll step back for a second, thought that this was going to kill the industry, that this was going to be so revolutionary that no planner is ever going to be needed. And Betterment came out with the first one. They've all kind of dominoed from there. I actually think robo-advisors, specifically the software, is fantastic for small accounts. Now, there is an AUM fee. It's usually 0.25 to 0.35%. If it's more than that, stay away. There's cheaper options. So if you have a $10,000 account, let's say, it's going to have an annual fee of like 25 bucks. It's basically nothing. But again, allow you to trade completely for free, but now you've got to develop the portfolio. So is it worth for a robo advisor software to, you know, you're going to answer maybe half a dozen questions and tell them how quote unquote risky you are. And then they're just going to recommend a portfolio, you know, so really it's like a no frills type software. It doesn't really know anything about you or your goals. It's just running its algorithm, just like it's programmed to do. And so any new money that's coming in, it's going to place the trades based on that. And it's pretty simple. It's great. I think for tiny accounts, if you've never started, you're in training, you want to get going, like great option. It's got little bumpers and guidelines that'll help you along the way. As that balance grows, it becomes significantly more expensive. And again, I mean, even a million dollar portfolios is only $2,500. So it's not ridiculously expensive, but again, it is $2,500 and you get zero advice, zero planning, zero anything is just to manage money. Now, Schwab, and Betterment and all the other ones have done this, but you've asked about Schwab specifically, and they've got a pool of CFPs that are now there to answer any questions. So now in addition to this percentage, they're now asking for a fixed flat fee to essentially help with your planning, which is great. It sounds on surface level, sounds awesome. And I actually think it might not be a bad option for someone who is extremely DIY. And instead of literally typing in Google, whatever your question is, you want to call someone and ask them that question. Because honestly, you're going to get about the same advice as if your patient was going to go through and use WebMD and go, well, here's my symptoms here and I think, I guess this is what I have. This is kind of the same scenario. These people that are going to pick up the phone, they don't know anything about you. They're going to give you extremely generic info because they don't know anything about you. There's no way that they could know more about you. You're calling into a call center, right? How could someone in a call center actually give you real financial planning advice that's specific to you. They're not going to sit down and have monthly meetings with the same person where you're going to be discussing budgeting or cash flow. They're they're not going to understand what your opportunities are, what your challenges are that are coming up. They can't answer any specific tax question because they don't have access to those records. And if you said, hey, I'll send you them, they're going to say, no, I can't actually take that. So there's a lot of handcuffs, if you will, on what they could do. This is not to say that they're not smart people. It's just meant for the masses. It's meant to be your number. You're churning out, you're paying $30. I mean, that's honestly nothing, right, per month. And it's just there to help support. All it's really doing is making sure that the assets that they're managing in their robo platform stay on the platform. Because that's all Schwab's trying to do. 
and they just acquired TD Ameritrade. They're going to be probably the world's largest custodian here. And now that they have the robo platform, which is competing with some of the smaller companies like Betterment or Wealthfront, all they're concerned with is more assets under management, the custody of assets. And so they're throwing this in to kind of entice you just to keep your assets there. It's not about getting high quality advice to you and making sure that it's perfect, right? And what they will be able to answer, though, with some certainty is around their portfolios and why the automated software is recommending that specific portfolio to you and why trades potentially were placed. But they're not going to be able to give you any advice on outside assets. So in your 401k, your 403b, it's not like you can, again, upload something to them and they help you rebalance across your whole household. They're going to look at you in siloed and basically the investment advice you're going to get is for the accounts that they have under management. So, you know, once again, you're calling into a call center and as long as you expect that going forward and realize that the value you get is what you're really paying for, you're paying someone essentially $360 a year, which is less than what honestly any real advisor is going to charge per month, then you should expect to get a ton of generic info and nothing that is going to be specific to you. Now, how does that differ from fee-only advisors and what we do? I think is extremely different. I just told you all the kind of issues that could potentially pop up, but there's going to be no specific actual written financial plan. There's no life planning involved here. There's no deep dive into cash flow. And we talk about using you need a budget. They definitely aren't going to be a joke and say we're coaches and accountability partners as well as advisors with our clients because we're meeting every single quarter and we're helping them work through what they have going on. And everyone is different. Personal finance is, is very personal and you can't just lump everyone together and say, well, call this call center and you'll get real high quality specific advice. And then think about all the other people in the country that are using that platform they don't know anything about doctors and their finances and specific stuff like you guys. It's so highly detailed and so different than every other profession out there. There's they're set up to fail. There's no way they could provide that level of service or info. So I think they're very two different things. It's for someone who honestly just doesn't want to Google. If you don't want to search for a potential answer and read it yourself, but you're more of a DIY person and extremely cost conscious, have at it. It's better than nothing. Sure. Right. I think everyone needs an actual written financial plan. Even if you are a DIY person, just to have that reviewed by an independent third party, these guys aren't going to do it. And that's okay. They're there. They're built for a reason. They're trying to make financial planning accessible to the masses. Meaning think about if you were tapped out on your resident salary forever, you couldn't afford to work with someone like us that charges $500 a month. Like, it's just not possible. You couldn't afford it. And I would tell you, don't. We tell residents all the time that reach out to us, now is not the right time to hire us. And really, when you become an attending or working through, you know, and earning the salary you deserve, that's when you should be reaching out to a financial planner. But if you have specific questions and you're a DIY person, by all means, go ahead. It's just make sure you know what you're expecting when you're going into this. And I will probably tell you they'll have zero idea about student debt. So if you're calling in about PSLF and the different type of income-driven repayment options and how to do something, they're going to be completely clueless because honestly, most advisors, even good ones, are going to be completely clueless because student debt is just very, very specific to certain subsections of the population where the numbers are hundreds of thousands of dollars and the mistakes could cost you tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
So hopefully this was helpful. I don't necessarily love pitching and talking about what we do on air because this podcast is really around educating you guys and helping you feel more in control of your finances. But clearly showing the bias here in answering this question, we are fee-only financial planners at Physician Wealth Services. We love working with physicians. That's all we do, MDs and DOs. We help physicians understand their personal finances. We help them build a plan and then we help them stick to the plan and we're there to help them along the way. So hopefully that was helpful and thanks again for calling it in. I appreciate it. Segwaying over to our financial malpractice segments, I have on John Apino from Contract Diagnostics. We highly recommend and love partnering with Contract Diagnostics over here at Financial Residency. Reach out to John and his team at financialresidency.com slash contract if you have any needs for contract review. John, welcome back on the show. Thank you for having me, sir. This is going to be fun because you've got some good stories. So let's hear what do you have for us in a financial horror spooky story Yeah, with contracts. So everyone finds jobs in different ways. There's all kinds of job boards that people can hop on. There's obviously connecting with friends. You're a program director that may have insights. And there's also recruiters. And recruiters can be very helpful and very beneficial in a job search. There's in-house recruiters, so those who work for a large hospital or system or even a small or a multi-specialty group. And then there's also independent recruiters. Well, the independent recruiters, the third parties, if you will, they get paid when physicians take jobs. So we've had a, a couple of physicians tell us that they've looked at you know, ads online or they've been contacted by a recruiter with the financials of a practice, whether that's salary or bonus or vacation time or details about a practice. And they're intrigued by them. And so, of course, then they give the recruiter all of their information, including their CV, their contact information, their cell phone, their, their personal email. Uh-oh. And they have it, right? So recruiters are fantastic people. But one situation that sticks in my mind is we had a gal who had found a job through a third-party recruiter and everything looked good online. She ends up going through, doing the site visit with the practice, getting a contract, reaching out to us, having us take a peek at the contract. And as we're talking about compensation, she had said, John, the ad that I saw online said it was X amount and there was the potential for bonus. And there was a one-year track to partnership. Of course, we're looking at the agreement and saying, well, none of that is in the document. And here's how you should do due diligence with the group. And we provided her some great questions to ask and asked her to report back. And she calls back and says that the group had said, no, we've never given any numbers like that. We've never allocated that amount for a signing bonus. We've never given anybody any inkling that's even possible. And what they were offering in the contract was dramatically different. It wasn't a few thousand bucks here and there. It was significantly different. And the physician didn't think that the position was then worth their time. So even though they enjoyed their meeting with the group, they loved the site visit. And once they received the formal agreement, they were disappointed. So they chose not to sign. And of course, that cost her a month of looking for a job. So because that's about how long the process took. So while recruiters can be very beneficial and can be very helpful to physicians in all aspects of finding a career or transitioning from one job to the next, it's important, of course, to make sure that all the expectations are clearly set. And how would one go about doing that? Or what, obviously, it's great that they were reviewing the contract and understanding what was built inside of it. But how would you be able to verify or do? Is it something that you'd recommend 
them talking to the practice before they get on the plane and go see it or before they go drive out and spend the whole time talking to them and getting to know them? What At what point do you see that maybe even before you get the contract to trust but verify? I think that doing as much due diligence in the processes as possible. I think with the group doing it online or if we're doing a phone interview or a phone screen before you hop on in the plane and fly there, I think it's making sure that if you're working with a recruiter, that they're a legitimate and they're a respected recruiter in the space. I don't know if they've got reviews for those individuals online. I know there's big companies and there's small companies. But I think doing everything you can to verify the, through the recruiter and then do the due diligence, of course, with the group. Had the physician not taken the time, of course, to call and discuss the contract with the group, I don't know. I'd like to think if there was a significant difference in pay, they wouldn't just sign it without having it reviewed. But I've talked to lots of people who have just signed contracts because this is the contract they sent. And they maybe didn't even look at some of the details. So as simple as it sounds, with a full review of the contract, let's not make any assumptions Let's have everything looked at by a qualified individual. And then, of course, just having that discussion with the group, making sure all expectations are clearly set. And if you're on a site visit beforehand, I think not necessarily discussing what you're looking for pay, but what they're potentially offering and then not making any obligations to the group financially as far as what you're willing to do until you get a a qualified opinion on the compensation structure. So um, I think all those things play into effect on how this individual... I don't know that they could have prevented it, but I think maybe looking at it with a crooked eye in the future for for certain positions might be a, a good idea. I think that's a good heads up. I always joke with physicians that are signing up with us at Physician Well Services, don't be a doctor, read the actual contract, ask me any questions. A lot of it is SEC compliance stuff that I can't change, but I can obviously help work through and walk through that that piece of them. So it is very, very important to review those. And it's funny when you said, oh yeah, give them their name, their email, their phone number, all this stuff. And I'm just thinking like when my wife was going looking for locums work, like she made the mistake of giving them their cell phone number. I'm like, no, why'd you do that? Don't do that. She goes, well, how would I get in touch with them? I'm like, Google gives you free numbers. Just go get a free <laughs> Google number and give it to them and it forwards to your cell phone. Yep. She's gotten that and and understands it. But that is an option out there, by the way, for everyone. For, but John, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. For anyone who needs contract review, we highly recommend to work with John and his team. Uh, you can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash contract. That's becoming one of my favorite segments. I really like that financial malpractice segment. It's always super fun. We get to hear different things from those in different industries than just generic financial advising that I do here with everyone at Physician Well Services. Hopefully this was really helpful for you guys. I love doing these shows. We've got a lot of changes coming to the show. We got a lot of changes coming to financialresidency.com. We got new books coming out. We're probably going to be starting up a YouTube channel pretty soon to get some video out. I know not all people who listen to podcasts will also watch videos. It's going to be different content. But we have lots of cool things coming for 2021. I'm very excited to share it all with you as it unravels and unrolls through. But hopefully you guys are staying safe. Thank you for doing what you do. We really, really appreciate you guys out there for us, protecting us, saving us, healing us. I know that uh, 2020 was crazy. Thankfully, it's over. 2021, hopefully it's better for all of us. But if this has been helpful, please share this with one physician or their family or physician family. I know that I'm trying to get the podcast out to as many physicians as I can so we can help them understand all the craziness that goes in our personal finances, all the way down to even talking about credit scores and credit reports, right? 
the fun stuff. Well, if you lasted this long, I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right. And before we close out the show, remember that today's sponsor was On Time MD, a course by Dr. Phil Boucher. And make sure that you use the 15% off code, which is 2021 when you go to checkout. And if you're looking to gain control over your life, your focus, your time, go to drpodcastnetwork.com slash ontimemd and use that coupon code 2021 at checkout. You can also click the link in the description of the show that you're listening to me right now. So, all right, Wyatt, take it away, man. Let's hear that disclaimer. All right. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. And I will see you guys on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.